0: Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask that by the aid of your spirit, Lord, that you would illuminate uh, this text for us, Lord, that we would see and understand the meaning of these passages in in powerful ways and then find the the, um, biblically faithful ways, Lord, to apply them to our own lives. God, we know that when you speak through your word, that we change, that we're changed by the... Uh, living God. So we ask now that you would come and instruct us and teach us and uh, help us, Lord, to apply these passages in a way that is very real and concrete and tangible today. Uh, We thank you for Jesus who makes all of this possible, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Okay, so today we embark upon the last leg of the journey to the, you know, long-anticipated destination, Sinai. So we're super close to Sinai, and at Sinai, that's where there's going to be this major turning point in the book of Exodus. It's there at Sinai that God is going to enter into a covenantal relationship with Israel. I mean, he's already redeemed them. It's becoming clear that there is people, but he's going to enter into a formal relationship, binding himself to this people to be their God and they his people. It's at Sinai where he's also going to give the law, which helps them understand how they'll be set apart from all the other nations. And and it will teach them how to live and worship and interact with one another as the redeemed people of the Lord. And it's at Sinai where Israel is going to become a treasured possession, a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation unto the Lord. But we're not to Sinai yet. I'm jealous. I don't know who has. Is it Adrian? Oh, Adrian gets all of the good passages. I'm jealous of whoever has Sinai, but we're not to Sinai yet. We're not to Exodus 19. Today, we're on that last leg of the journey before we get there. And we're going to find that God has incredible purpose in delaying this journey. You see, he's setting a pace um, that clearly the Israelites are not happy with. But he's setting the slower pace, bringing them along uh, uh, a pretty difficult path filled with hunger and famine and threat in order that they might learn to trust him. You know, they're going to enter into the sacred bond, the sacred covenantal relationship, but first he wants to teach and train them how to trust him for everything, for every single need, for for their satisfaction, for their provision, for their salvation, for their food, for their water, for everything. And so, so these passages we're going to look at today is like the, this implicit call to trust the Lord. And then if I had something out here, it would be exclamation mark. Trust the Lord. Every, I know I'm a very exclamation mark person, but I actually think that is the meaning behind the text. In fact, this entire journey from after the Red Sea, uh, from fifth, Exodus 15.22 on to the end of our passage today, Exodus 18.27, every single scene is filled with that implicit call to trust the Lord. And though our you know, historical and cultural circumstances vary greatly from the Israelites in that time, uh, we find that these stories... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we're written down as an example for us to be used as uh, instruction for us, meaning that in these passages, there are principles that apply directly to our lives even today in Portland, Oregon in the 21st century. So the same call that was given to them is going to be our call today. It's going to be our big idea. It's trust the Lord. You can remember that. Trust the Lord. And we're going to see why in four and three different points. Trust the Lord who, one, provides, who, two, delivers, and who, three, saves and sanctifies. Trust the Lord who provides for his people, who delivers his people, and who saves and sanctifies, his, saves and sustains his people. So first, trust the Lord who provides. Look at Exodus 17, 1 through 7 with me. It begins by saying all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Okay, pause there. Are you having like deja vu right now? Okay. It's like, didn't we just read this story? What's happening here? This is not the same account. Some scholars try to argue that. It's not the same account. This is a different account. This is another opportunity where God leads them. Notice it says they marched by his commandment. So God leads leads them directly to a place where there is no drinkable water. Why? Because he's giving them another opportunity to learn to trust him. Guys, this is a do-over. You know what I mean? Have you ever failed to trust the Lord and you sit down in hindsight and you think, Oh, if I could just do it all over again. The Israelites have got that. They got a do-over. Here, they have the exact same situation placed before them. And this time, having looked back at, uh, you know, just weeks before at the Lord's supernatural provision, not to mention having examined or at least recalled the fact that that very morning They gathered enough manna from heaven to feed themselves, their households, and all their animals. Just that morning, they did. And so this was an opportunity for them to recall upon that and look to God and trust, to go to Moses, the mediator, and say, would you call upon our gracious provider, Lord, and ask him to bring us water? But did they do that? No, deja vu is because it says that they quarreled with him. I think a better, a better translation would be there that they protested against Moses, saying, give us water to drink. And Moses says, why do you quarrel or protest against me? Why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? Here, this testing, is it's, it, it's sinful. This isn't, this isn't just... This wasn't asking graciously or asking God to provide as as often we do in difficult circumstances. This was saying to God, you prove yourself and then I might trust you. It was suspending judgment about who God is as provider until he proved himself yet again. Now this time, if you provide water this time, then maybe we'll trust you. You know, I think we read this and it's so outlandish, right? He led them through the Red Sea. He had them escape from Pharaoh and all the army, you know, against all odds. He's given them water to drink. He's given them bread and meat from heaven. He's continued to sustain them in his presence, traveling with them. And we think, how in the world could they do this? But I think we often, all, you know, we do this. It might be more subtle but i think we test the lord we we say things like lord if you would just provide rent for this month then i will i will never doubt your provision again god if you would just give me a spouse then i will i will serve you all the days of my life god if or you know in my personal circumstance and many of you god if you would just give me some positive lab results then i'll know that you're for me and it's sin. It's sin, and it's sin that needs to be judged. These, um, the, in the, here, the Israelites think they deserve water, but in testing God, the only thing they deserve is judgment. And, and, and so here's what God does. This is so interesting. He says to Moses, pass on before the people, Take in with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your, your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And so then Moses goes on to do this and, and water gushes out of the rock. Now this is a neat passage. Because here in some mysterious way, God's presence... Is actually in or bound up in or somehow spiritually represented in the rock itself. So to think of the rock that Moses is stri- strikes is actually to think about God on that rock and he has Moses strike himself. So here we see substitution, don't we? We see that the people deserved judgment. God then actually had Moses strike him, taking the judgment upon himself and giving the people living, drinkable water. And it's, it's amazing, but it's kind of fuzzy, right? In the Old Testament, God's a rock. You know, when I think about this, I'm like trying to imagine God, the being bound up in a rock, and then I see like a rock talking. You know, I, I get really distracted on details, like a little cartoon. The rock is moving, you know, has a little face. So yeah, it would be... Maybe that's just me. It's been a long month. But, but you know, trying to understand this here is, is still a little fuzzy. But what is fuzzy in the Old Testament becomes abundantly and absolutely clear in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that he says that all drank the spiritual drink. It's talking about the Israelites. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So that means in so, somehow, in some way, the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, the Son, manifested himself in such a way that he was there to provide for the Israelites. Not only to provide for them living water, but also to be judged in their place. Again, they would have not understood this, but on this side of the cross... We understand this with perfect clarity, don't we? That, that on the cross, Jesus, the second person of the triune God, took on flesh, lived the perfect life we could not live, and then went to the cross and died for our sins in our place, taking God's judgment upon himself, and then rising from the dead and ascending into heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit. Now, I know this is a lot. I can't tell. You guys track with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I need smiles, you know. Okay, so this, in the New Testament, water is always associated with the Holy Spirit. So this is why, coming all together, why in John chapter 4, Jesus would tell the Samaritan woman that if she drank of the water he had to give, that she would never thirst again. And this is why in John chapter 7, just a few chapters later, he stands up and tells the crowd, whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he was talking about the Spirit. So in the New Testament, this scene... Is used. This is kind of the background to a lot of the New Testament imagery we have of Jesus saying that he'll provide living water. Here the people thirsted for physical water. But God takes that, that, that story, the scene in Exodus, and transforms it in the New Testament in such a way that we understand our greatest need is for living water, for eternal life. For Jesus to save us and send his spirit to indwell in us. And, and give us eternal life. Now, the application here is not that we need physical drinkable water. I'm pretty sure most of us have that. I mean, if you don't, there's a water fountain like 100 feet that way. It's drinkable. As far as I know, I fill my water bottle with it. So it's not physical water, but it's, it's, spiritual, it's spiritual life. It's this life-giving water. And if you're here today and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus's work, his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf, then I imagine that you are really thirsty. Thirsty for something more, thirsty for something that matters, thirsty for, you know, like for your soul just to be soaked with refreshment. I know because as an unbeliever, I was there. I was always looking to all these different streams of water to satisfy. You know, I was looking to to guys or affirmation or new clothes or all these worldly things to satisfy this craving, this thirst I had. And when I met Jesus and I repented of my sin and put my faith in him, he just poured out life-giving water. It was like rain, just like this amazing, satisfying rain fell on this dry Desert of a soul. It's amazing. And, and Jesus offers living water for all who will put their faith in him and repent of their sin. That offer stands today. If you don't know him, or if you're curious about it, or if you're just thirsty for something more, talk to me or your table leader or one of your friends afterwards. If you are a believer here today, I just want to remind you that as a believer who has the Spirit, Your greatest need has already been provided for in the cross of Christ. Your greatest need has already been satisfied in the cross of Christ. So often in our daily lives, we get so caught up in our needs and so overwhelmed by what we don't have or what we need to get done or what's lacking that we begin to test God, all the while forgetting that at the cross, God has dealt with your greatest need. I mean, we ask God to prove himself in this way or prove himself in that way, and all the while it's like the cross of Christ is screaming of God's love and care and concern for you. And if God has done the greatest thing, how much more will he not also provide for all of our needs as he sees fit according to his divine wisdom and will? So so the call in this text here is that we would look to Christ, when we start to feel that temptation to look to other things or to, to test God to prove himself, we go back and look at Christ. We worship and get a, a vision of him that is so much greater. We go to the gospels and read about his life and death. We, we pray and ask him to make himself, uh, you know, just to help us understand that redemptive work better so that we can know we can trust this God to provide rather than test him like the Israelites, we're to trust the God who provides for his people. And don't worry, Kelly, that was my longest point. (laughs) Second, trust the Lord who delivers. We see in Exodus uh, 8 through uh, 16 here, uh, yeah, 8 through 16, we have this new scene, right? The narrative shifts, and now the Israelites have another opportunity to trust the Lord, but this time it's from outside threat. In, in verses 8, it sets the new scene. that Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So it goes on to explain how Moses went up on a hill... And and he upholds his hand. And as long as his hands are up with his staff in his hand, Israel prevails. When he drops his hand, Israel begins to lose. So Aaron and Hur came and propped up his arms uh, in such a way that the, the battle went on and went on. And finally, in verse 13, we see the climax that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now... Joshua's absolutely a key character here. This is the first time he's introduced. It's significant that he's the one fighting and the only holy war sanctioned in the book of Exodus because he'll go on to be the the one who leads God's people into the land, right? He'll be leading the conquest. So it's significant that here we see him as the person leading the battle. But in verse 13 is the text saying that it was Joshua's skill and valor and strength that defeated the Amalekites. No, no, no. It's all about that staff in Moses' hand. Here the staff, it's kind of interesting, but the staff here is like a signal pole. It's like a military signal pole, something we don't really think about nowadays. But Moses would hold it up, and that meant that these people were enlisted in Yahweh's cause. And the victory was to be remembered in verses, um, there in verses 14 through 16, It was to be memorialized and remembered, not for Joshua's leadership, but for the Lord's gift of victory. The clear principle here is that the victory in the battle is always the Lord's. It's unmistakable, not only in the staff being raised up, but in the name of the altar, that the Lord is my banner. So, Right here, we get into really interesting ground with how, as new covenant believers, we interpret this passage. Because this is, like I said, the first um, and only in Exodus sanctioned holy war, but this is going to become very prominent in the book of Joshua and in the um, series of the conquest into the promised land. So how do we apply this passage? Well, I'll tell you, there's some really bad ways to apply this passage. Am I right? Hopefully no one at your table did that, but um, it's possible. I'm sorry. Um, I've seen people identify with, uh, so here's what I've seen. I've seen people identify with the Israelites and then identify the Amalekites, like with their unbelieving coworkers or family members or someone they're in conflict with, you know, and they're like, the Lord, you know, they're in this conflict and they're like, God's, the Lord, the battle's the Lord's, God will be victorious on my behalf. I remember one gal, it's no one here, was at a different church, so that's why it's going to be funny and not sad. Um, I remember one gal I was in a group with, she would come to group and go on and on and on, uh, uh, complaining about the persecution she received at work as a result of her faith. So she would explain how... um, how, how she would explain how she would interrupt conversations to tell them about the Lord. She would get rejected. She would explain how she would, she would stand firm on the gospel and people didn't want to eat lunch with her. She would explain how she let people know where they were sinning and, and they wanted nothing to do with her. And she drowned on and on and on. And, as, and, and she says, you know, at the end she's like, I just know that the Lord, the battle is the Lord's. And I'll be victorious. And I was like, Mm. I was like, this is coming from a fellow believer. (laughs) All I could think of when she was talking is like, oh, I, I just kept thinking, okay. I think, I think it's your coworkers who need the delivering. I mean, she was just... It was so painful to be around and so misguided. Now, I make light. That's a more extreme example. But I do think we think like this at times. We identify with the Israelites, and we think the battle's the Lord. And then we say, who are our enemies? Who are our Goliaths? You know, when really the enduring principle here is to trust the Lord who delivers his people through his anointed servant. That's the enduring principle. So however we apply this, we have to understand we're to trust the Lord who delivers his people through his anointed servant. So then we need to ask two questions. Who is our enemy and who is the anointed servant? Well, is our enemy unbelieving family members or coworkers? Is our enemy other nations, you know, America versus the world? No, no, no. The New Testament makes it so clear in Ephesians 6.12 that our battle is a spiritual battle and the enemy is Satan and his minions. It says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil on the heavenly places. Today, we don't engage as as a theocracy, a nation ruled by God in holy wars. No, no, no. As God's redeemed people in the New Testament, we wage war in a cosmic battle against Satan and all the powers of darkness. That's the real enemy, which means when our unbelieving coworkers reject Jesus, we don't battle against them. We recognize that Satan has a grip on these people and we join God in his mission to set them free. We pray that God would release them from darkness. We pray for opportunities to share the light, to be a light. I I mean, we engage God in his mission, not against the unbelievers or a different nation, but against Satan who has his grip on these people. But is it like, you know, and the battle's up in the air, this is the cosmic battle, and it's going to be God, it's going to be Satan, who's going to win? No, no, no. Number two, who's the anointed servant? You guys got this one. Jesus Jesus is the anointed servant who has delivered his people from the domain of darkness Jesus is the one who has been victorious over Satan and his and in all the powers of darkness Colossians 2 uh, 15 makes it clear. It says that on the cross he disarmed the rulers and authority and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him at the cross Jesus defeated Satan. And so though we still engage in a cosmic battle, we know and trust that God has been victorious through his anointed servant. And so I think this empowers us, right? In our evangelistic efforts, this empowers us when we feel spiritual oppression. This empowers us when it feels like darkness is all around us. We know that God has already won the battle in Christ Jesus our Lord and so we trust him and we fight alongside him to push back the powers of darkness and until that day where God will bring his kingdom, his consummated kingdom, and there will no longer be any darkness. So we trust the Lord who delivers his people and finally we trust the Lord who saves and sustains. This is all of chapter 18 I know that you all have been reading it closely just because I've done the homework alongside of you. Also, we're going to paraphrase here some. But here, after a long journey from Egypt to Rephidim, one can only imagine the relief and encouragement that Moses has when Jethro comes, right? He comes, he reunites the family. Most of, none of us knew that the family was even gone. But apparently, at some point, uh, his wife and his two sons were sent away, probably for protection and safety. And then Jethro gets word. It sounds like it's a good time, and he comes, and he reunites the family. They bless one another, and then Moses tells um, Jethro all about what God has done, how he's delivered them from the Egyptians. He tells them all about the hardships they've had along the way, but he shows them that in every instance and circumstance that the Lord saved and sustained his people. And Jethro's response to this is that he rejoices. Uh, uh, Maybe a more literal translation could be that he delighted in it. This isn't just rejoicing for the sake of his son-in-law. This was a personal delight. He had heard about Yahweh. He had heard about the things that had been happening. This, This miraculous, this God who defeated Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And when he gets up firsthand gets close firsthand hears the story and all the different ways he delights this god is truly the god above all the other gods and here in this chapter we have the conversion uh, of a pagan or a midianite who served other gods i know it's not overly clear in the text but i want to know uh you might say how do we know that jethro was converted Three reasons why. First of all, he worshipped Yahweh in verse 11. In verse 11, um, oh, I do need to move. Okay, in verse 11, he says, um, uh, I am in 18. Verse 11 is, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they've dealt arrogantly with the people. And so we know that he worshipped God, he blessed him, and then he brought sacrifices and offerings to this God And then he ate a sacred meal, or what was known as a covenantal meal, with Yahweh's people in the presence of Yahweh. Now, you have to remember, at this stage of redemptive history, they only had so much information. That's about as much as they knew on how to be Yahweh's people. You worship him, you offer sacrifices. It was very common to offer sacrifices in the ancient Near East. But instead of offering to pagan gods, now they offer to Yahweh. And then all throughout the Old Testament, we see when God is with his people, he eats a covenant meal with them. So clearly, by worshiping Yahweh and, uh, and giving sacrifices and then uh, eating this covenantal meal, the sacred meal, Jethro has become a follower of Yahweh. It's conversion. Gosh, I have a lot to say about this, but I don't have time. So let me, let me think what is going to be the best to tell you. Why is this here and why is it important? It's here to illustrate to us the bigger plan of God. In Exodus 19, God's going to save Israel and he's going to make them his people. And then the whole Old Testament is really going to narrow in and focus on Israel so much so that if you didn't know the backstory, you might think God's only plan was to save Israel. But, no, 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 from Genesis 11 on, Actually, from Genesis 3, when he promises the serpent crusher, God's plan was always to save all nations. Now, this plan took place like this. In the Old Testament, he saved Israel as a people, and they were to so glorify him and mediate his presence to the nations and to show the nations what this God was like, that all the nations would come streaming in to Israel and would convert under him. And we do see this in in stories like uh, Rahab, Ruth, And here Jethro, so so Jethro is reminding us here before we kind of get to Exodus 19 and then we really get caught up in Israel's story, this is an illustration reminding us that God's plan was always to save all nations. And in terms of application, this changes in the New Testament, right? Israel failed to live out their calling as a kingdom of priests. They failed to represent God to the nations so much so that he exiled them into the pagan nations. But on the New Testament, Jesus came and lived the perfect life. He came as the faithful son of God and the true Israel, and then he died for our sins and offered and obtained salvation for all people. So now people don't stream into ethnic Israel. Now Jesus' disciples have the Great Commission, and we go out to all the nations proclaiming this message jethro reminds us that yes at this stage of redemptive history god was drawing all nations to himself but we know now on this side of the cross that we are to go out and proclaim the gospel to all nations that's why we send out people that's why i can't skip this it's too good and you guys will let me because we all love her that's why though it's going to be heart-wrenching to send out the lawrences to depart with chris we just have become fast friends and i just, I joke, I told her kids that I totally have a crush on her. We, uh, we crush on each other. What can I say? I mean, it's going to be devastating, and yet I know it's so good because they're going to the nations to proclaim the gospel. They are going to, to tell the world about Jesus. This is the call. This is all of our calls. And if we can't go, here we sinned. And so we sinter her with a lot of tears and sobbing, but with excitement about God's mission and plan to save all nations. And not only do we send people out, but obviously here, if we trust the Lord to save, then we have boldness in our evangelism. We have boldness in sharing the gospel. We take risk with people. Telling them about what all what God has done through Jesus, knowing that God is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for Himself. And then we have a great, great, great story about how God sustains Moses through this final scene. Uh, I'm just going to have to say this: I think that I think you guys did good work in the text through the homework. You know, Jethro comes; he sees that Moses is clearly going to burn out. In fact. Uh, a parallel account in, in uh, Numbers uh, 11 shows us, when, uh, the story with the quail that we have in 16 in Exodus, shows us that Moses was so overwhelmed, he cried out to God and said, this burden is too much for me. If you're going to give me this burden, kill me. I'd rather die. So, I mean, it's like clear hints of burnout, you know? It's like, when you want to die, like, burning the candle on both ends, right? Right? And so here Jethro suggests a system where where Moses raises up godly men and they spread out the burden causing Moses to be sustained and endure. And so through this Moses implements it and and God sustains Moses through the help of others. But Moses had to trust the Lord to share his burden with others. I think the homework did good about explaining how leaders and pastors and elders really need to share the burden. So I just want to speak on our last note, personal application to all of us. I think we could all glean some wisdom in this. In our Western society, we think, and we idolize the lone ranger who saves the day, who does it all. We esteem the person who never asked for help as if that's godly. And yet in the Bible, you never see someone who never asked for help held up as an example for us. In fact, Jesus, our great example, the Son of God, distributed his ministry among disciples. He relied on the 70, the 12. He intimately relied on the three. And he had several women contribute, contributing and supporting his ministry. If Moses needed to share the burden, if Jesus shared the burden, then surely, ladies, as believers today, we need to learn to share the burden with others so that we don't burn out. Of course, in the clearest way, this is just asking for help. Learning to ask for help. When, uh, you know, when things are hard, when things are difficult, not just learning to ask for help, but sharing ministry with others, doing ministry in collaboration, uh, seeing giftings in others and supporting one another. I mean, we need the local church. We need relationships within the local church to share the responsibility of caring for the flock of God, for discipling one another, for doing evangelistic ministry outside. We need to do it together. We need to do it together. And I cannot, just in closing, I have to tell you that I used to hate asking for help. The idea of having to ask for help was humiliating. It seemed like a weakness. And all of you, or most of you know that I've been battling chronic illness for four years now, Lyme disease, for, um, diagnosed for two years. And I have had to learn to ask for help. From everything to someone doing my dirty dishes, to getting me groceries, to taking me to appointments, to rushing me to an urgent care, to cleaning my house, to filling in the teaching team, I, they have picked up, I haven't taught for a year and a half, so that's why I'm letting myself go over. I haven't taught for a year and a half. I just want to put that on the record. I, but what I'm saying is, I have, when I read this, this text today, I was like, oh my gosh, yes. Yes, I know this so intimately now that to do ministry for the long haul, whether you have chronic disease or not, to do ministry for the long haul is to trust the Lord enough to ask for help and to bear one another's burdens. So today, I I would just call you from these scenes we see, these little scenes we see, to trust the Lord who provides for his people who, who delivers his people and who saves and sustains his people specifically on this side of the cross through Jesus Christ. I, I, I just want to pray for us. And as we do, I'm going to pray quickly. And as we do, I just want you to think about what area in your life is the Spirit convicting you to, to look to the Lord and to trust him more deeply? Don't let it stay up in theory, right? Bring it down. Where do you need to trust the Lord and his anointed servant in your life? Father, we thank you for this word. God, we pray that you would uh, make it stick with us, that you would even now be using your Holy Spirit to, to give us a very tangible, concrete example of how we need to trust you. And then you would provide through your son, through your spirit, and through your people ways to trust you more deeply in those areas. Jesus, we praise you that we stand on this side of the cross and that we know you have provided everything we need. We know you have delivered us from the powers of darkness and we know that you have saved us and you're calling all peoples to yourself. Lord, it's in your name we pray, amen.